This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a buddy of mine and a teammate. We were teammates in 2000. San Diego Padres. He was an all-star in 2003, and he pitched in the big leagues for 15 years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Woody Williams. Woody Wood, what's going on, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate having me. Thank you. A uh, long time we haven't talked. Um, <laughs> Woody, oh, it, Woody and myself, we play just to catch the Boom podcast up. We only played together one year, but uh, I see it seemed that one year seemed like I knew Woody for a long time. We had a played against each other a few times, and he was one of those guys. He was one of those. And I always say I didn't like pitchers. I didn't like being buddies with pitchers. And Woody was was kind of one of those classics. I'd face him, and, and I and I couldn't stand it because he'd kind of give me a look, and I couldn't I, I couldn't get in the box, and he would take my focus off hitting. Uh, just because of his personality, another uh, good friend of mine that did that to me was a guy by the name of Dave Burba. And, and I just, it's like you had a little bit of an edge. Although I did get him. I finally got him one time. He used to give me a hard time that I didn't, I didn't do very well off him, but I did get him one time in San Diego. Um, What have you been up to? What have you been up to? I know I I've checked. You were coaching JC for a long time. You check, you, you were a pitching coach with the Longhorns. What are you up to these days? Well, right now, uh, unemployed, so to speak. I'm looking to get back in the game. Uh, my time at Texas kind of ended abruptly and uh, a little surprisingly, but uh, here I am, and, uh, you know, we'll just wait to see what happens. I've had a few opportunities with professional teams to jump in and be double A or triple A pitching coach. Uh, it's not kind of where I'm at in my life right now. And, and I love the college game. Woody, from the time we came up, we were in college to, you've been with these guys a long time. Now you went to the, uh, I think junior college world series, five times, San, San Jacinto. Um, how are the kids different than when we were coming up and how are they the same? Well, they're the same just because of the immaturity. Uh, They're bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, I would say more developed as a whole than we were. But 
as you, you look at them and you see a six foot four, 250 pound, 18 year old, he has a man's body, but inside he's still a child. And so the development of the mental side is, is super important today. You had 132 wins during your, your big league career. You beat all 30 teams. Kind of a fun fact, kind of something that not everybody's done. Uh, who was the first – what was your first big league win? It was uh, a relief appearance, I believe, in extra innings in Toronto against Oakland. I think, uh, I think it was like a two and two-thirds or three innings of relief, and I ended up getting a win. What about – um? When when were you aware that you you had beat you were well uh, of course until we got to the thirty were you aware that you had beaten twenty nine of the thirty teams in the big leagues? No, not at all. I mean, when we when we played, I don't think stats like that really mattered much. You know, so going so going into that, nobody nobody mentioned you. So when you when you did that, you were told told about it after the fact. Correct. I think Toronto was the last team, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. All right. Favorite place to pitch? Uh, San Francisco is tough to beat. That's that's a good pitcher's park, especially at night. Least favorite place to pitch? Ooh, there's a lot of those. I'd have to say Cincinnati. Your brother and his boys beat me around a little bit, no matter uh, what stadium it was. I was, I forget who I was talking to on the show, but we were talking about, you know, hitters, batters, box. And I said, you know, when I first came to the big leagues, uh, the majority of the batters boxes, once you get to the big leagues, the, the backdrops, they're pretty universal. They're pretty, they're pretty good. There were indiscrepancies. I'd go to Wrigley Field and, and that was kind of, that would turn into a sandbox as the day went over. But by the end of my career, they had taken care of that and everything was kind of uniform. So when I got to a ballpark, I could close my eyes, put me in a batter's box in the big leagues in the early two thousands. And I, I couldn't tell a the difference. They were all, they were that good at keeping them consistent. Talk about on the pitcher side, the mounds consistently inconsistent. Did you ever notice a certain mound at a certain stadium was always was off or, or something that wasn't to your liking? Well, Cincinnati could have been one, but that could be the team too. You know, it's funny as you mentioned that, and my mind went straight to Cincinnati. You know, the new stadium, at the beginning, the mound was so low. So I don't know if it had a lot of sinker bowl pitchers or what it was at the time, but the mound seemed lower. Uh, the highest mound was always Oakland. Now, whether it was true to measurement or not, it always felt like you were way up high and having to really drive down to the plate. Uh, I did notice in, you know, the hardest thing for me as a pitcher is when I step on that rubber and I look at home plate and if it's crooked or seems crooked, I'm in trouble. And whether it's the plate that shifted or the batter's box is not quite perfect as we're used to it being, those little things sometimes, you know, it takes a while to find your release point and get your eyes to match up with your body. I had, you know, there were stadiums like that for me too. Oakland, I actually had some success in Oakland, but I felt like when I stepped in the box, you talk about the the mound being crooked. 
I swear for years and years, I would tell Edgar, I'd say, the, the batter's box crooked in Oakland. You can't hit the ball out the other way. Like, not that the dimensions were farther than other places, the other, but it's like your body didn't set up. I, I can't explain it, but it, it was just something different than any other venue that I would go to. It all seemed pretty, pretty, you know, pretty symmetrical and everything would set up. Like I said, I mentioned that the batter's boxes, they were all, but, but it seemed like Oakland for some reason, it's just hitting the ball the other way. It's like I had to force it and do things that, that would kind of mess with my mechanics to hit a ball. And I don't mean just hit a ball to right field, but I mean, hit a ball to right field. So I, I, I have no idea what that was, whether it, it was legitimate or it was just me. And, and when I went to that ballpark. Now, Joe Robbie stadium, uh, where the Marlins used to play, it almost seemed like you were throwing uphill. You know, you had a, you had a close backdrop, so the stands were close behind home plate. It always looked like you're throwing uphill. And I remember Roger Clemens telling me when we went in there, say, "Hey, you you got to make sure that you focus on your warm-up pitches because it's going to be different than any other stadium." And sure enough, it was. And isn't it amazing though? As as hitters, we we never think about stuff like that that a pitcher goes through. We always think now it's just pitcher, and we're always worried about ourselves. But we never think that he may like this mound, he doesn't like this mound. Why does he pitch here? Why does he not pitch good here? It's interesting. Um, I want to change and go to teammates. You started off in Toronto. Uh, went to San Diego, St. Louis, back to San Diego, finished in Houston. So I'm going to name a few. Well, first of all, I'm going to ask, what makes a great teammate for Woody Williams? A great teammate to me is somebody that's unselfish. Somebody supports their teammates regardless of how they're doing. And, you know, in life and baseball, it's hard to, to, to stay even keel, but, the very good ones could remove themselves from their own body and pour into others. How was I as a teammate? You're great. How, how was Boone as a teammate, Woody? People want to know. You're, you know what's funny is that one of the first <laughs> things you mentioned on this uh, podcast is that we played together in 2000. And if you would have asked me without saying that live, I would have told you we played two to three years together. I think we, we created a bond, a friendship. Uh, we could joke, we could laugh, and we could brush things off. Uh, you were very supportive. You kept it things light, and you made it fun for everybody. I'm going to go with some teammates that we both are affiliated with. We, One way or another, we both played with, or one of the guys I'm going to mention is one of my favorite guys, not only through my baseball ties, one of my favorite guys in life that I was around. You were a teammate of his. All right, I'm going to start off with this. Johnny Olerud. Classic. I mean, he is just a special person. Very calm demeanor. Uh, I think he was very undervalued, underrated. Fabulous ball player, but fabulous person. And by the way, when I mention any of these guys, if you've got a good story, give me a story. All right. all right, second one. We both played with this guy, one of the greatest of all time, Tony Gwynn. Infectious smile. Uh, you know, I used to get to the ballpark early. So I'd get to the ballpark, you know, when my family wasn't there. Uh, by 
when they were there by two o'clock and sometimes 1.30 when they weren't with me in town. And when we were playing in San Diego together, one thing I noticed about Tony is that I was never the first one there. He was already there, already sweating. And I'm, I kept thinking, what is going on? What, I mean, what is he doing that he's sweating already? Well, he had already hit 200 balls off the tee by the time I got there. And then, then it was early batting practice. Then it was regular batting practice. Here's a guy that was just committed to his craft. And regardless of how he was doing, the work never decreased. I mean, it's, it was amazing, his work ethic. I think you mentioned his smile. That's all I remember because that was, once again, this is a teammate that I only had for one year. But the, my, my memories of, of Tony uh, was basically sitting in the front seat. We are going on a road trip. He'd have a suit on. He'd have a hat. And he would just sit there in the front and just laugh, you know, with the knuckleheads in the background, doing providing all the entertainment. And Tony would just give you that laugh. He'd turn around, look at you, give you that big smile. And, and that's what I remember about Tony. It was infectious. It, it, you know, I would try to talk hitting with him. It, it was different because he's left-handed. Anytime, you know, and you, when I talked about Ole, the first guy we mentioned, I agree with you. One of the best human beings out there and a great player. But we, when it came to hitting, you know, Olaru was my first baseman for five years and, and we'd sit there and we'd talk hitting and I'd look at him. I say, Ole, you know, the rule. I, I, I can't, I can't discuss hitting with a left-handed because you, you just don't know what we're going through. Everything's breaking away from us. And, and Ole used to laugh at that. I had the same thing with Tony. You know, he tried to explain to me his philosophy. I understood what it was, but it's, I, I just couldn't put it on my side of the box. Um, and you're right. I, I just remember that infectious. I think that's a great way to sum him up. Infectious smile. All right. This is the one that I wasn't a teammate with. You were, he was my hitting coach for a season. Paul Molitor. Wow. Paul Molitor. What a pro. Uh, you know, in his life, he went through a lot. Uh, the way he played the game. You know, I, I would love to see how many hits he would have got. You know, you can say this about everybody, but he had, I think, four seasons in his career that he missed due to the way he played. It wasn't, you know, a sprained ankle here or there. He just played all out all the time. And, uh, he played hard, but he was a guy that was very professional. Uh, didn't have to say anything to get a point across. And just the way he carried himself made others look up to him. But, you know, his career speaks for itself. But uh, great teammate. Loved having him as a mentor. It was, uh, you know, I definitely value my time with him. Ryan Klesko. Teammate of both of ours. I, I was a teammate a couple times with him in Atlanta and in San Diego. He's a beauty. Absolute beauty. I had to throw that in the middle. He was different than the than the other three. It's like, which one doesn't belong? Klesko. But I knew your relationship with him. All right. I mean, he was ha so happy-go-lucky. Uh, you know, he cared. Uh, his personality made people believe or, or tend to believe that maybe he didn't care as much as he did. Or he wasn't as smart, but he was a smart baseball player. He knew how to set pitchers up. He knew how to have a plan at the plate. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until uh, I saw him after baseball that I really realized how big that man was. He is a monster. 
Trevor Hoffman. Finish up with him as on the teammate segment. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Well, here's a, here's a guy that, that kind of beats to his own drum, so to speak. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd see a guy out there running early in the day with uh, gray shorts and a, and a, a doctor's garment on top but that's that's what he did every day was the same he treated regardless of good bad or indifferent how he did on the field every day his work was the same and i think that uh, spoke volumes i think he led a lot of the uh, bullpen guys that you know are kind of flound- either floundering in their career or trying to figure out how to go about their work but i, I never saw he never got too high. He was never, never so full of himself. You know, this, his guy was one of the best of all time. And you talk about a constant demeanor, somebody that, uh, you know, whether you give him praise, he was the same, or whether you just blew a, a three-run lead in the ninth and didn't get an out, he was the same. He had two tenures with this man, and I'm going to come back to him in a little bit on another topic, but um, <clears> he <throat> just won the World Series. Bruce Bochy. You know, everybody asked me what was so special about Bruce, and I tell him that he cares about his players. I mean, he ultimately cares about his players and and their success. And what makes him so good in the game is he's, he's trying to figure out how to win the game in the eighth before the game even starts. You know, he, he's playing chess when the other others are playing checkers. We're going to move on to something in the game. Mound visits, something that I've never talked about on, on this show. And something as a second baseman, I was a part of my whole career. I'd, I'd come see a pitcher for various reasons. And it depended for me who the pitcher was what his personality was on what my message was going to be when I came in from second base. Some guys, it was, you know, if I, if, if I see Woody out there and you're laboring, I'm going to come in and give you a break. Usually our conversation is going to be something light. It's going to be funny. And it, it's nothing more than a time to give you a breather and reset your clock get your mind off. You know, you might've walked a guy, walked two hitters in a row, which you rarely did, but that was my job as a second baseman. You've done it now a lot on the coaching side, but what would Woody, what would Woody, the coach, Woody, the pitching coach tell Woody Williams, the pitcher in his visit to the mound. Well, I think, uh, you know, like you said, there's times when you can keep it real light and fun. There's times when you need to challenge somebody. Uh, you know, for me, 
I didn't like to waste time. I was either going to go out there and win quick or lose quick. And so I think a lot of times uh, I would make sure as a pitching coach that my mind was on the right thing. My mind was clear. What I mean by that is that uh, I knew situ the situation. I knew that how I was going to face the hitter. I knew who was coming up uh, after the who's going to be on deck, who's going to be in the hole. Uh, do I have a base open? Uh, just trying to pitch smart and, and try to get myself out of that one inning. The thing I look, you're watching this year, the rule changes. Guys can't do that anymore. As a second baseman, I don't have that luxury of time. Let's, let's calm everything down. Let's get back on the same page. Can't do it anymore. Um, how would you do with these new rules? Did, first of all, did you like them? Did you like them? And how would you do as a pitcher with the new rules? The one thing that I, I really, really love is the pitch clock. Because there was, you know, I, I know, you know, there's hitters that took forever to get in the box, but there's also pitchers that took forever between pitches. And, you know, the flow of the game is much better. Um, you know, I think bringing in relievers and having them face three hitters or get the last out in that inning. Uh, you know, at first I was against that, but now I kind of like it just because there were some managers that would, would use their whole bullpen in two innings and the game, the time of the time of the game just drug on. But, you know, at the same time, you can look at it and say, well, a lot of the, uh, thinking has gone out the door. Uh, you know, as far as the shift, I think it's good and bad. I mean, my whole thing is, is if, if guy, all he guy could do is pull the ball, why not put everybody over there? You know, you're not, you're not challenging him to bunt. You're challenging him to get better if they go hit the ball the other way. And when he, when he can go the other way, then you have to shift back. But, you know, now having everybody, the infielders having to stay on their side of the second base, it's a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the hitters are, are pleased with that. Well, I went into I went into this, you know, into the season kind of with an open mind. You know, I, less less is more for me as far as changes in the game. I don't like to see a lot of change. I'm kind of a purist. I like to keep keep it as uh, things the same as much as possible. So I was I was definitely skeptical of the new rules because I kind of, you know, our our sport is the one sport that wasn't based on a clock and all of a sudden they were going to introduce this clock. And I, you know, immediately I go to the hitter side, obviously it's okay. You know, you got to have time to get your signs. What if you don't get the signs? What if it's one of those times where you didn't see the sign and you tell them to go through it again? Well, you don't have time to do that anymore. And then I thought to myself, it's 2023. They don't even give signs anymore. Nobody bunts, nobody hits and runs. So it wouldn't matter. But then I thought, okay, for myself, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You know, it's okay. I know I've got to be in the box in a certain amount of time. But then I thought about other hitters and the way, you know, if, if let's just say you're a great hitter or a bit great pitcher and you take your time, all of a sudden you've been doing it one way for 20 years and all of a sudden you've got to change. I thought, is that really fair? But once it got going, once these guys got used to it in spring training, man, that game was crisper. It was sharper. It was done being on the media on this side of the, the mic. It was great for me because, 
if I, if I taped a game, I knew it was going to be two and a half hours, two hours and 40 minutes. And it wasn't going to be a four hour long tape. I think you, people were more ready to hit. I think as a result of that, more balls were put in play. Uh, the only thing I didn't like, and tell me what about, what would you do with this? The hitter has to engage the pitcher at the eight second mark, but the pitcher can hold the ball as long as he wants. So the cat and mouses that we had as pitchers and hitters, I felt like the pitcher had all the, all the, all the cards there. Cause it was like, I had to engage you at eight seconds, but you could throw it whenever you want it in the past. If you'd hold the ball on me, I'd call time. And now if you want to do this all day, I think of a Jamie Moyer who, who used to play those games with hitters. And, and if you want to play that game, I'll just step out until we're, are we both ready? Now we can play. But I just felt it gave a little bit of an edge to the pitcher. What are your thoughts on that? What are, what are the if there are some cons that you saw with it? What are your cons? Well, my thing is you mentioned, you know, the hitter has to be in the box, but he also has to be engaging of the of the pitcher at the eight second mark. Right. So, our one of our first year uh, games last year, University of Texas, we were playing, and and uh, Dylan Campbell, our right fielder, was in the box. He's he's very relaxed and you know when he's hitting and he steps in and he's just you know he's just sitting there like this and looks at the pitcher and the, the, the umpire calls a violation on him calls a strike on him but that's who he is in the box i mean was he looking at the pitcher absolutely but because he wasn't like you know grinding like everybody else does he says oh he's not ready so I think it took a while for the hitters and the umpires to understand that part of it. You know, you can't you can't look at Brett Boone and Woody Williams and they're standing in the box. They're not going to stand the same way. The intensity is not going to be the same way. You're not going to be able to see, you know, somebody gripping the bat as tight as I may grip it. Just for the pitcher, you know, there are some guys. Steve Traxel comes to mind that took a long time between pitches. You know, but he had a routine. He got the ball, walked around the mound, grabbed the rosin, you know, fixed his hat, whatever he had to do. So guys like that, that that had their routine, I'm sure they felt super rushed. You know, that that was, I bet it took two or three games for, for somebody that was outside that 22nd mark to figure it out. You know, they did have it spring training, like you said, it started, it started happening quicker, but you know, there was a lot of beef from, from both sides of the ball during spring training and, and people trying to get used to it. Another concern I had, and it didn't seem like it came up, was, uh, let's say, a playoff game. I mean, you played 162. We're in the playoffs. Uh, you're struggling as a pitcher. You need a breather. It's a big situation. You're not ready to deliver the pitch. You can't get on the same page with your catcher. Whereas normally, all right, this is a big pitch. If we're not, if we're not on the same page, you're going to, as a pitcher, you're going to call the catcher out. Go, let's discuss this. It's a big pitch. I got the bases loaded in game four, and, and we're not going to rush through this. We're going to make sure we're both on the same page. I'm committed to it. You couldn't do that anymore. That's the one thing um, that I was worried about going into the season. Like, I don't want to see a game ended on, on a pitch violation. That would be ridiculous. Uh, it never happened, and I think the umpires had it to their discretion. So I, I don't think they were going to let it happen and let it really 
change the outcome of a game, especially a big game. But that that was my only concern. And, and other than that, other than I'd like to see him change that eight second engagement, probably bring it down to about a four. Because I know if I sit there, I'm ready to go because I'm forced to be ready to go at the eight second mark. I expect us to to engage within a couple seconds. Now, the old rules when there was no clock, whenever I was ready, boom, I'm here. Maybe you're not ready at that time. I have the ability right there to go, okay, he's going to take a while here. I'm going to step out and and collect myself. So, uh that's the only thing I'd like to see if I had a if I had a you know, a beef with it was I'd like to see the hitter maybe the 4 second engagement so we don't have to sit there for that 8 seconds and and drag it out. Right. The only, the only negative thing about that I see is four seconds for a pitcher. Once you get in the box and you're engaged, you know, to actually, you know, so, so basically he's going to have to have his sign long before that, but you know, with the, with the everything being electronic and shot in their ear now, they can uh, make that happen. But, you know, going back to your point, you didn't want a game to end on, on a violation. I think the catchers did a tremendous job of understanding their responsibility for the pitch clock. You know, as it got close, they called timeout, maybe put on a dummy sign and get back there. Or you'd see a lot of times the catcher just running out to the mound when they did have an extra visit. So managing visits and, and the priority of the catcher uh, looking at the clock, I think, was managed very well. I know you're looking for, for uh, your next position, your next adventure. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast today. It was good catching up. And uh, I wish you all the best, man. Uh, For those of you watching the Boom Podcast, now you can watch on YouTube. I appreciate you tuning in. For those of you who listen to the Boom Podcast, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.